So I know that um, some of you are thinking primarily about the fact that it's New Year's Eve, but in here, it's still Christmas, which is why we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This is the seventh day of Christmas, to be exact, and the first Sunday of Christmas. And this year happens to be the only Sunday of Christmas because Christmas Day was on a Monday. Uh, So it's still Christmas. Merry Christmas. On the way here, I saw a familiar guy who was walking his bulldog in my neighborhood, and the bulldog was wearing an Argyle Christmas sweater, so he gets it. (laughs) Merry Christmas. So on the first Sunday after Christmas, our attention always turns to John's prologue, the first 18 Um, the 18 verses of John's gospel. We have this three-year cycle we call the lectionary of diverse readings. They change year by year what we read to give us the whole counsel of scripture, but every first Sunday of Christmas, we read John 1, 1 through 18. Why is that? Well, as you know, on Christmas Day, we celebrate that the Lord of the universe was born into humanity for our sakes. And then on the Sunday following, we expand on that. We expound on that, on what that really means in the grand scheme of things. And there is no better way than to begin with John's beginning here. To hear again what I want to call a poetic and a prophetic and personal message. Words of this man who knew and loved Jesus and learned from Jesus and a man who uh, would later be exiled for his unwavering devotion to this message. John begins this account of the life and ministry of Jesus by telling us what it means for the whole cosmos. He starts in the deep end. And so we start, in some sense, in the deep end. He's speaking to the cosmic struggle of humanity against the pervasive darkness that we face that shrouds our understanding and our sense of meaning our sense of purpose, of value, of who we are. And in doing so, John is setting the stage for the story he's about to to tell. Uh, uh, It's an invitation, really, into wonder and into belief for some who had never heard it before or read it before, but also an invitation to us to believe all the more. It's an invitation that, as I said, is poetic, it's prophetic, and it's very personal. And so that's kind of how I want to frame this today. I've preached on this text, I don't know, seven, eight times at least. And so that's how I want to talk about it. So first of all, the prologue of John is poetic. And when I say that, uh, I mean it in a technical sense because um, it, it, it is structured in a particular way, but also because it feels poetic, if we really will listen to it. These 18 verses do have a form, they have a structure, Uh, that's meant to be remembered and recited. It's not obvious to us as late modern people when we read this, but it actually reads like very thoughtful Jewish meditation literature. That's why you find this repetition. That's why it might sound to you like like it's redundant. Like, wait, he already seemed to have said that. What seems like redundancy, though, is actually a kind of... I'll just kind of call it a kind of symmetry, if you will. There there are these parts in it that are relating to one another, but also to a center. John is building a center here and relating these parts, even these two times that he mentions John the Baptist witnessing to this. 
And if you think about this, this kind of symmetry is what we do appreciate in music that sort of builds and takes you somewhere, but it also kind of returns, doesn't it? It, it uses repetition and refrain. Uh, it, it returns to a chorus and to a theme. And it just sort of moves that, the, that, that theme and those words into us. And that's what John is doing here. You could also say that John is maybe sort of opening with a drama in two acts, in which John the Baptist, as I said, is right there in the immediate foreground as the messenger, as the witness to these things, while all around him, the light and the living word to whom he's witnessing are sort of filling the, out the whole stage and the whole background. And as I said a couple weeks ago, John is pointing to this. And now John the Apostle is pointing through John the Baptist to this larger story. So then beyond the structure that we have here of the, that's poetic, John's imagery and the metaphors that he uses, they are, they're actually meant to take the reader beyond the head, down into the heart, into wonder. Beyond the interior, we'll call it, of, of Israel's situation, which was immediate and local for them, but out into the wider expanse, what to take them out wider into all of history and actually into the larger crisis of the world and of humanity. And he's beginning there, and as I said, it's kind of the deep end. And let me just say this, by, by the way, as a rule of thumb, when you're reading a story in Scripture and you encounter this kind of structure and you see, how oh, well, there's some repetition, it feels like you already said that, it's usually a clue that there is some intentionality at work. It might be meditative type of literature. And this, this happens a lot, actually, in the Hebrew Bible, which, again, it can feel strange to us as late modern people because we're always kind of looking for things to be linear and um, very clear sort of linear structure and like what's the argument being made and we're looking for an apologetic and we're looking for it to be somewhat technical. It's how we're sort of wired up in this day and age. But if you always go to the Bible looking for these things, for this way, you're asking too little of the Bible. It has more to say in more ways than we're often equipped to hear. And so that's part of what I want to deal in today. So my first point is this prologue is a stroke of genius, poetic genius, that I think we can just blow right through on our way to reading the story about Jesus. But it's far more than that is the point. And again, pre-modern Christians and even, you know, others who lived in their day and age, they understood this. They knew this. And uh, for example, in his monumental 5th century work, The City of God, St. Augustine, he mentions this curious philosopher uh, he knows who told him, as after he read uh, the John's gospel the first time, he said, the beginning of this gospel ought to be copied in letters of gold and placed in the most conspicuous place in every church. Now, if anyone wants to sponsor that project for Village Church, let's talk about it. It might be right there, maybe. So, again, it's deeply intentional. It's deeply poetic. But secondly, it's what we might call prophetic. It mixes well with the poetic. So if you read the prophets, you know there's something really poetic about the way they want to depict things, um, and the way they hear from God and convey the truth from God. It mixes well with the poetic as prophets were known for, but it's not prophetic in the sense of, um, you know, in, in the future foretelling sense. Like here's what's about to happen, but in what we call the foretelling sense. This is actually what's going on. This is what's being uncovered. 
So it's prophetic in that way. John is a seer of sorts. He sees and he remembers. Remembering is an important role of the prophet. He remembers the thread that runs through things. What's not so obvious, he uncovers and he restores in vivid colors the not so obvious, the larger portrait that gets easily faded out over time. It gets shrouded by distractions, by other agendas and urgencies, by immediate concerns, or even the very easy interpretations of what's going on, which is what we're apt to do. So a prophet says, there's more. And John speaks to this very thing. That, that actually happened in his day as Christ came and as the message was proclaimed. He says his own did not receive him in verse 11. He says the world that he made didn't know him or recognize him. And why is that? It's because he didn't fit their preconceived agendas and expectations. And at least while he was on earth, you couldn't make him into what you wanted him to be. That came immediately after he ascended. And that's a project that has continued for two millennia. The Jesus you want, not the Jesus you need. The Jesus who really was and is and is to come. So here, like a prophet, John, he retraces these red threads that kind of run through Israel's history. He starts as a Jew with the Jews. And while first century Jews might understandably be focused on the immediate political reality that they are facing uh, while they're, you know, during this Roman occupation, John wants to do this for them. And for us, he wants to widen the view, widen the aperture. Let's look at it widely and more deeply. And he does this, though, in, in particularity with his own people, the people from whom Jesus came. He reaches backward, way backward, to their origin story, to Genesis 1. But he also reaches back to Exodus 26, the tabernacle. These are two primary stories of God's presence and God's power in Israel's history. Creation and tabernacle. First, let's talk about creation, how this ties in. You still with me? All right. John's opening words, they are the opening words of Genesis 1. That much should, should be obvious to us. He says, in the beginning. This is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. Basically, John wants to say that Jesus, who was with God and was God at creation, has come in the flesh to be the divine creative agent again. To be the living utterance, the living word of God, to be God's words that shape reality again. Let's not get too philosophical, but just think about words bring shape to the world. For us, they bring shape to a narrative. They bring shape to our relationships. They, we, they, we rehearse them, and they bring shape to the way we think about ourselves and others. And that is really just an example of what's endued in us from God, the God who actually shapes reality with his own word by speaking. And God said, let there be, and there was. So this is what Jesus is to John. The Bible scholar Mary Callot, she explains an even deeper pattern that's connected to Genesis 1. So this is both poetic and prophetic stuff going on here as it connects with uh, Genesis 1. She makes the point that like Genesis, the literary design of the prologue has a four-line introduction, then two sequences of three that are parallel to each other. In Genesis, those sequences are the three days, uh, the, the first three days of creation, and then the second three days of creation. And then there's a conclusion sentence. John 
sorts it out just like that. And I don't have a whiteboard you know, up here, but and I can't break all that out for you. You can go back and nerd out on it if you want later. I like to nerd out on this stuff. And I'm, if you don't like that, I'm sorry. You have to suffer through it. But he's intentional about this. And so Genesis, here's the, how Genesis concludes. This is actually chapter 2, verse 1. says, and so were finished the heavens and the earth. And I think it's, it's um, compelling for us to think about that for John, the life and death of Jesus leading to his resurrection, it becomes another it is finished, which is in fact what Jesus' last words were on the cross. Jesus is creating anew with his own death and imminent resurrection. In Jesus, light has come again into the darkness of death and chaos, and that darkness, John says, has not overcome it. Catalambano. That's fun to say, isn't it? Catalambano has not overcome it, or as some translations render it, the darkness has not comprehended it. I like to think it means both. Hasn't overcome it, hasn't comprehended it, the darkness doesn't get Jesus, and the darkness can't deal with Jesus because of the power of his light and the life that comes through it. So it's in verses 1 and 14, returning back to this idea of Jesus as the Word, John calls him the Word, the Logos in Greek. And that's not just a basic translation of a word and a concept for his Jewish audience. He's saying the word, he is the Word made flesh, uh, John believes that Jesus is the same, as I said, the and God said in the Genesis account, who brought shape to formlessness and substance to the void and, of course, light into the darkness. He's, he's speaking again. This time he's in the flesh, but there is more genius in this. Part of it, it, it uh, the genius in the passage, is that logos was a familiar concept to the Greek and Jewish philosophers of John's day. And whether intentional or not, some people think it was intentional on John's part. Some people don't think so. This gave John's words traction in two cultures. It was it was like light hitting a prism and you just turn it and all the more people see are able to see it in a fresh way but through their own perspective. For the Greek philosopher, I'm just giving you examples, Heraclitus, the Logos is the omnipresent wisdom by which all things are steered, almost equivalent to God if he had one. For Greek Stoic philosophers, the Logos is the common law of nature imminent in the universe to maintain the unity of the universe, what they call the divine fire or the divine uh, soul. Lots of New Age religions like to use this kind of language. And then Philo of Alexandria, who was actually a Jewish philosopher trained in the Greek tradition, he called the Logos, and I like this the best, the captain pilot of the universe. So when John is calling Jesus the Word, it's landing in all kinds of ways on lots of different people, Jew and Greek alike. And I, think to John, uh, I, I like to think that John was really clever, maybe just that clever, guided by the Holy Spirit to see the universality of truth being discovered by different people. And we talk about that a lot in our day and age. But of course, what John sees is that truth is embodied in the only God is embodied, fulfilled by, and terminating in Jesus. If you've discovered something out there, it's pointing to Jesus, he's saying. In Jesus, the Word, God has returned to his people to create anew. 
He's bringing more grace to go with grace, John says. Grace upon grace for the whole universe that he loves. Grace just means an undeserved gift, right? He's come to redeem the glory. And the glory is an important word, to redeem the glory that he invested in human beings, to cause it in some sense to, to reflect again, to shine again. We use this word glory a lot in, uh, in the church. In, it's all over the scriptures. We sing it. Um, but it simply means the public display or array of someone or something to speak to its reputation, to its, its character. One of my uh, New Testament professors, Sam Storms, used to describe glory, the glory of God as the external elegance of God's internal excellence. The external elegance of God's internal excellence. That's what this glory is. That's what God is revealing himself. And so this leads us to the second expression, leads us to the tabernacle that's present in what John wants to say here. The second expression of God's faithful presence. The tabernacle he called the Israelites to, uh, to erect in, on their journey in the wilderness as he's rescuing them uh, from slavery in Egypt, but also he's rescuing them from themselves, we find out. In response to them making a golden calf for worship, God gives them instructions to build this mobile tent of sorts. It would be a kind of earthly habitation, a place that God was willing to be with them, to make his glory known. He was accommodating the infinite to the finite, making his dwelling among them. On one of the curtain walls of the tabernacle, if you read back in Exodus 26 and following, there was depicted intentionally the heavens. God wanted to say, heaven and earth are coming together right here. God is dwelling among you. That mobile tent would be how God's glory was encountered, and it was a, what we call a mediation. It was a meeting place for God and man where the Lord kept giving himself to them even when they didn't deserve him. Even as you wander, I will be here to a place where you can return. This is the definition of grace. And so for John, beginning in verse 14, Jesus becomes that new tabernacle where God's glory can be seen, encountered, where God is making his dwelling among us, but now as one of us. Jesus would become the skin-on embodiment of the presence of God and the pleasure of God, bringing his grace and bringing his truth, bringing an undeserved gift, bringing again, restoring again the glorious light that he had endued into humanity so that it may shine again, so that God's ways and God's will could break through the ignorance and the deception of our world that so easily captivates us. Later, of course, as Israel settled in the promised land, the tabernacle would give way to the temple that Solomon built. And later in John's gospel, Jesus would refer to himself as that temple torn down but rebuilt in three days. And they said, what are you talking about? It took 40 plus years to build this. Jesus says, tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. He was talking about, John says, his own body. So John gets it and he's conveying this before anybody starts reading the story. He's saying, this is what's going on. He wants us to get it. 
And then he talks about the law. He talks about the continuity that exists, right, between the law that Moses gave. We hear a little bit about what, how Paul is making sense of it in our Galatians reading today. What, what's happening is not a replacement of the law that came through Moses, this guardian that Paul says, but it's fulfillment. It's grace after grace. It's grace upon grace. Grace gave you that, now grace gives you this. It's the next wave. And what we see in Jesus is this whole system whereby God was present to his people is now the system you know, of sacrifice and ceremony, the tabernacle, the temple. It's all finding its fulfillment in Jesus because what God is restoring is not some ceremonial religious access. What is God after? Communion. To dwell with us to be with us, to have fellowship with us again. It's a foretaste that Jesus is bringing of a new Eden so that we as new children of God, born not of the will of man, but of God. It's a foretaste of a new Eden, the adoption of sons and daughters into the family. And really, the truth of the matter is, this meal takes us there every Sunday. It's why it's so essential. It brings us back to, we call it, communion with God that is provided by the very form that Jesus took on for us, the flesh and the blood, the presence, the mediation, the tabernacle, the temple, the logos, the creative energy and power that God has for us and that moves is meant to move through us and that apart from him, we fall short of. That's why we call it a means of grace. It tells the story in ways far beyond our own conception. It's grace upon grace. And this is where John's prologue gets personal. Because he's providing all this, I think, to put in front of us, all of us, whoever's about to read this, the invitation. Because you know, he says, the word came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, or in other words, in his authority, in who he was, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. A new creation. So what John is doing is really, he's, he's kind of saying, if anyone reads past the prologue, they're about to discover that there is a crisis in Jesus' ministry. A line driving right through his audience and right through first century Jerusalem and Israel where people will receive or they won't. Some will reject the glory and the new creation work. They refuse to believe, but some will receive him. And John, I think, is preparing the reader ahead of time by putting the crisis right there in their laps on the front end. It's as if he's preparing them to ask of themselves, who will I be in this story? How will I respond to this witness? that began with John the Baptist, declaring that Jesus ranks before him uh, uh, because, as it turns out, he came before him. That Jesus is the preexistent. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the center. He is the light. What do I believe about that? And so I just want to close where John ends the prologue in verse 18. It's not so obvious to us because I'm assuming, I know at least one person who reads the Greek pretty regularly in here, but it's not obvious to us unless we see how John puts this in the Greek. He ends this way, verse 18, he says, no one has seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side makes known. 
dot, dot, dot. There's actually no him in made him known, no object to the verb in any manuscript. And the word makes known is exegeomai, which we get exegesis from, right? It's how we interpret scripture. We're trying to draw out the meaning. Jesus is actually, John is saying, bringing out the meaning, unfolding the communication. And, and again, many scholars believe that this is an incomplete sentence that is not an accident on John's part. And I think that that's pretty convincing. Why? What might he be doing? Certainly he could be, it could be implied he's referring back to the Father he is making known, the God who is unseen that he is making seen. But it could also mean that he's referring forward in an open-ended way to the narrative that follows. He's trying to lead people who are reading into making meaning through what they're about to read. For John, the meaning, the unfolding, the drawing out, the conclusion is coming next as they read on. He's saying, read on for it to be made known. He's taking you and he's taking me into the story of Jesus to provide the meaning and to provide the revelation. Jesus will make God known by giving meaning to everything. He's not just making the Father known. He's bringing now in new creation the whole meaning, the whole, the whole purpose of everything, the meaning of our world, its existence, our existence. He's bringing it into a place radiating again the glory of God and saying this is what it means. And he's beating back the darkness to do so. So I think this prologue reminds us that our stories, and I think this is what John's doing, that our stories are invited into that story. That we can begin to make meaning of our stories within that story. That our crisis belongs in that crisis. Our crises. Because I don't have just one crisis. I've got some crises. We all do. This larger story, I think, is meant to exegomai our smaller stories, to tell us what they mean, to unfold the meaning of our stories. Because we're all trying to make sense of it, aren't we? I am. Make sense of our lives and the words and the thoughts by which we create our own narratives. And I think John is saying that the meaning of it all is ultimately found in Jesus. It began in him. It's recovered in him. Light and darkness, hope amid it, hardship, a future beyond darkness and death and failure. It becomes your story, it becomes mine because of a God is, who is committed to what and to whom he loves relentlessly. Grace upon grace, a God whose character of long-suffering and grace are undeterred by our constant failures. John is saying, you want to know who you are? It's made known in who he is. And that's the call. Jesus, the living, creative, restorative word, our tabernacle, he speaks the meaning of God. And so he speaks my meaning and yours. It's grace upon grace. The meaning of our lives, lives we live in a world that is as broken as it is beautiful. We feel it. And so Jesus speaks meaning to lives that always need more light, but are also, like John, we're witnesses to that light. The light in life that we're just learning to live by with his help. Lord, help us as we cross this line of demarcation into a new year to receive more light, to see our stories unfolding and the, the meaning-making happening in the life of Jesus.
Help us even like Nicodemus we didn't underst- who didn't understand to come to Jesus and to try to make sense of this new creation life and to ultimately put more and more faith in you, Lord Jesus. And lead us. Help us to trust you. Help us to reject and push back the darkness of our own stories and our own understanding to receive this light afresh and anew together as your people. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.